All right. Testing one, two. Okay. Amen. Well, praise God. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank You so much for this time together this evening. Thank You for those who are uh, present here in the room, Lord, and for their faithfulness. And Lord, for the faithfulness of those who are watching us online, either live or, or recorded later, Father. We thank You for Your hand upon our lives. Father, we thank You for Your Holy Spirit who's uh, not just uh, in us, but Lord, He's with us, He's among us, He's upon us, and He's leading us and He's guiding us, Father. He's our teacher and we submit ourselves to Him tonight. Father, we ask You, Lord, tonight that You give us uh, more than information. Lord, we're not just here for information, we're here for revelation, Father, where Your Holy Spirit turns lights on inside of us, Father, where we can see things more clearly than we've ever been able to see them before, and perhaps, Father, even see things we've never seen before. And we thank You, Father, for unlocking our understanding to know your truth and wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. All right, so this is class number four. Welcome. Praise God. Uh, I probably should have said this before we started uh, recording, but um, if you're new, we'd love for you to register for the class. We'll get you on the roll. And uh, if you haven't checked in, make sure you do so uh, at the check-in table uh, so that you get credit for uh, your presence here uh, this evening. Praise God. So as we mentioned, it's class uh, number four. And... Um, I want to do something before we jump back into where we left off on, on last Wednesday. And um, from time to time, I will uh, interject uh, a comment or something from a verse uh, that we're really not prepared to, to expand upon. And I did that last week, okay? And so I have uh, received questions about that. And uh, obviously, it's a, a point of contention uh, for a lot of people. Uh, in, in the body of Christ today, a lot of confusion surrounding that. And uh, so I'm not, I'm, I have no intentions of trying to give a thorough answer, um, but I will, uh, in other words, now, because Isaiah says that we learn, uh, I'm going to kind of illustrate it with my hands tonight, okay? We learn um, line upon line line upon line, and then it goes precept upon precept, precept upon precept. Now, I'm repetitive sometimes, but that's exactly how it reads. Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. So, that verse creates a mental image for me. And that mental image is someone laying brick. And if you've ever watched someone lay brick, or if you've ever laid them yourself, you know that they lay them line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept. In other words, you can't, you can't uh, lay row 14 until you lay rows 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, until you get to that one, right? After you've laid row 12, then you can lay row 13, then you can lay row 14, right? So, when I made that statement last week, because I didn't want you to be confused, where the Bible says, if you sin, you're of the devil, right? Uh, and so, you know, we may have made a mistake or committed a sin, and I don't even make you think, well, that means I'm of the devil, because that's not what you think it might mean. If you think it means that, I promise you that's not what it means. But in the course of that, I said, 1 John has already stated that if you're born again, you cannot sin. Well, amen. That is, a matter of fact, if you, I played it back and listened to what I said. I said, don't choke on this, all right? Now, uh, my grandson, he's learning to eat solid food, right? 
and um, and every now and then he'll he'll take and put something in his mouth that's too much for him to chew up and swallow, and uh, and he'll kind of give it one of these, right, and then he'll go and spit it out, right. I've seen a lot of people over the years sitting in my classes and and sermons, right, go <laughs> and spit it out, all right, amen. That's what I mean by choking on it, right. We got to be able to chew it up, swallow it. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're doing in here is we're, we're going from milk to strong meat. And, and, you know, you have to develop some teeth for strong meat. You have to develop some appetite for strong meat. And um, it's a lot easier uh, to prepare a milk-based meal, um, serve it, prepare it, serve it, and then eat it and digest it than it is to prepare a meat-based meal, serve it, people eat it, and digest it, right? But we're making that leap. Amen. So, I jumped to row 43 on you last week when I made that statement. And there's going to be a lot of rows. That's why I asked you. Listen to what I said. I said, don't choke on this and promise me that you'll stay tuned to these classes even if you move to Alaska. (laughs) You watch it online, right? For me to uh, build all and fill in all that needs to be filled in to support that statement. But, before we, again, just because I did it and there's some questions... Um, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10, um, it says, if we say we have no sin, um, we make God a liar and His Word is not in us. Alright? Um, so, the bottom line of it is, um, we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I'm fixing to do it again, but I'm on, and what I mean by do it again is I'm fixing to say something that's probably going to get a whole bunch of questions. But um, the Bible clearly teaches us that it was not your sin that made you a sinner. It was not your sin that made you a sinner. It was Adam's sin that made us all sinners because we were born of his corrupted seed. And his corrupted seed produced within every one of us the nature of a sinner. The Bible says we were by nature children of wrath. Okay? Now again, you know, you asked me and we're here we are, right? So in 1 John chapter 1, it says that if we say we have no sin, different translations read a little bit different. If we say we have no sin, if we say we have not sinned, right? We're, we're basically saying God's a liar because God said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? Now, if you go over uh, two chapters to 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 9, he says this, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. God's seed remains in you if you've been born again. And he cannot sin. The man or woman who's been born again not only doesn't sin, but the Bible says that you cannot sin because He has been born of God. And let me tell you what else I said last week. I said, if you're going to go out of here and tell somebody, Pastor Mark said you cannot sin, okay? I said, make sure you correct yourself because Pastor Mark didn't say it. God said it. I'm just telling you what He said. Okay? Now, the answer to this again, it's going to take us some time to develop and build. We're building this. 
I like to say back to this passage, line upon line, line upon line. That's how the truth of God is built into your life. That's why if we're going to have sound doctrine, we're going to have to endure it. It takes some time to lay a brick wall. Right? So I'm, that's why I'm asking you to be patient. And, and there are time to time. I've tried. It, it, I get so excited. I get so passionate about this that when we're on one section, especially if it's a section or a verse that I know we're going to come back to in the future and do some more explanation, it's, it's almost all I can do to contain myself to not go ahead and at least say something about it, right? And so that's, that's kind of what happens here in, in, in these situations. But let me, if I could, help you understand this, and, and that is the answer to this dilemma is not that the Word of God is conflicting itself or that God is confused. If in one chapter He says, if you say you have no sin, you're not being honest. And in the next chapter He says, if you're born again, God's seed abides in you and you cannot sin. There's not a contradiction here. There's an explanation. And the explanation lies in a few things. The main one is, you are a three-dimensional being. You are a spirit. You possess a soul. And all of that is contained within a physical body. I look at you and I see one of you, but my Bible tells me when I look at you, I'm looking at three of you. Spirit, deepest part of you, the real you is your spirit. That part possesses or is housed within a soul. The soul is the part of you that thinks and feels and chooses your mind, emotions, and will. And then all of that is like a hand slipped into a glove that is your physical body. Amen. Your, your physical body is like an earth suit that you're, the real you lives in and lives through. Okay, My eyes are windows and my spirit and my soul are looking out through the windows of my physical body and they're seeing you. Right. So if you say you have no sin, because he just got through saying if you sin, that's the other thing. If, if you sin, confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you say you have no sin, you're not being honest. And you're, and you're saying God's not being honest, which is even, even a bigger deal, right? But now he's saying that God seed abides in you and you cannot sin. So again, the only way you understand this is in your flesh, if you say you have no sin, you're not being honest. If you, if you say that in your flesh you still don't make mistakes and commit sin, you're not, you're not telling the truth, okay? But your spirit, your born-again spirit. So there's other verses that we've got we to gotta bring on the table here. Because there's a lot of folks that look at that passage of Scripture where it says that, um, that the evil one can't touch you. And so people think anything that's bad or negative must come from God because the evil one can't touch me. He's talking about your spirit. The evil one absolutely can touch your mind and try to put thoughts in your mind and manipulate circumstances and situations in your life. That's why we have to take authority over him. If the evil one couldn't touch us, we would not have to put on the whole armor of God, take up the sword of the Spirit, and defend ourselves against his attacks using the name of Jesus. But he's talking about the part of you that's been born again, that, that new, newly born spirit inside of you, the real you. And that's the part of you that cannot sin. Which means you cannot be separated from God. So now listen, I, I feel a little bit compelled and maybe I'm spending more time here than I need, than I need to spend, okay? But, but let me just tell you, all right? I was, I was raised Southern Baptist um, until I was 12 years old. I was born again when I was 5 years old. Um, loved Jesus. Um, that's how I was raised. Um, set apart from my mama's womb, just like all of you. We've talked about it in here already. Um, my Baptist brothers 
told me that the baptism of the Holy Spirit with initial evidence of speaking in tongues was, was, was not only not for today, they told me back in those days that it was of the devil. And I believed them. Until I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 12 years old and spoke with tongues. Well, then my Pentecostal brothers told me that my Baptist brothers were wrong about eternal security, once saved, always saved, whatever terminology you hear and use about that. Okay. And because the baptism of the Holy Spirit was such a profound experience in my life, I tended to side with my Pentecostal brothers in belief that not only were my Baptist brothers wrong about um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they must also be wrong about um, salvation. Their salvation doctrine. All right? And so I struggled with that for a lot of years. Because see, there, I call it Pentecostal legalism. And what that means is, um, it's up to you to keep yourself saved. And that's not biblical either. Okay? Are you hearing me? It's not biblical either. Our righteousness is not based upon our works. Our salvation is not based upon our works. Paul clearly said, who bewitched you? Who has put you under some spell that causes you to believe you can finish something you couldn't start? That you can maintain something you couldn't produce? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you actually believing that you can finish out your salvation in the flesh? It's never going to happen. Alright, so, I shared part of this testimony with my morning class, my Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning class. And maybe at some point I'll share some of that in greater detail with all of you. But I knew I was called to the ministry. I went, uh, you know, my whole life was geared towards that. Um... I started preaching when I was very young. Um, but I reached a point in my life to where just a lot of religion and, and, a, and a lot of politics, and, and I, that's not me. I'm just telling you, that is, that's not this brother right here, okay? And so I, I, I was put out of the ministry. If, if there's a such thing as that, the church that I was on full-time staff at, let's just say we parted ways. That's an easy way to say that. But, and I never thought I would ever preach again. I had no intentions of ever preaching again. Um, I was going to be a wealthy businessman. I was going to give money to missionaries to go preach the gospel in remote parts of the world where people have never had the privilege and honor of hearing the name of Jesus a single time. And I was just going to fall on God's mercy when I stood before him one day for not doing what I clearly knew I was supposed to be doing. But that was just, that was hurt. I was hurt by people. That was childishness. That was immaturity and and obviously, Father God brought me full circle, and here I, here I am today. I've been doing this again now for 20-something years. Praise God. All right, now, in that interim, that wasn't to prepare a sermon. It wasn't to, you know, try to have some argument with somebody that disagreed with me. I was done with all of that. I wanted to know the truth. That's, that's as simple as I know how to tell you. I wanted to know the truth. I wasn't toting anybody's denominational water. I, w I wasn't towing anybody's denominational line. I wasn't... You understand what I'm saying? I mean, you know, if, you, if you're going to be ordained and, and, and licensed and certified by these folks and you represent, and you represent what they believe, and that's only right, I guess. I don't know, whatever. But I was done with all that, man. I was through with that. You know, I just wanted to know the truth. And, and that's what... It's going to take me weeks. Just the, this one question. This one question. That, that I was asked today about what I said last week. Are you ready? I'm not trying to freak you. I'm just, you ready? It's going to take me eight hours to answer it in this classroom right here. Okay? 
Right? That's, you know, so again, when I tell you, I'm not just here to give you like what my opinion is about this or what the denomination I'm a part of believes about. This is a non-denominational church. I'm not a denominational man. I'm a kingdom man. Okay, I'm a kingdom man. Amen, it's just that simple, right? And so, um, there's a lot of things that people believe. Me and Sister Gail having a conversation this morning, you know, about why do we believe what we believe? And there's a lot of folks that believe things that are right, but they don't know why they believe them. And there's a lot of people who believe things that are wrong, and they don't know why they believe them. It's just that's because what mom and them believed. And that's what the church I grew up in believed. And we've never really taken the time to, to dig into the Scriptures and, and break them down, go to the original language, and really see what's going on here. Okay? And that's one of the things that, I, you know, without trying to talk about what we're going to talk about in the future, that's one of the things that I am most excited about for all of you, to be able to share this truth with you. And those of you who have heard other people talk about, oh, you've got to go to that class, man, that class will change your life, all that stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's that part perhaps more than any other part. And I'll be honest with you, I, just about every year, and that may be an exaggeration, I don't think I did last year or the year before, but I did again this year. I'm like, Father, should I just start with that? You know? And, and see, that's violating this line-upon-line line principle. Right? Because he, here, here's the thing, if, if you're not willing to make a discipleship commitment, you're not going to your eyes are not going to be open to it when we get to that anyway. You see what I'm saying? All of this is, is, is uh, assimilated into us, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And that comes, if you, remember what he said, uh, when you seek me with your whole heart, that's when you find me. If your eye be single, your whole body will be full of light. Right? So, I understand, I, you know, we, um, I know... Sister Betty and, um, and Sister Dodd and others. Uh, I don't do it every year, but we, we have in the past, we have taken the full two-hour class just on a handful of verses out of Hebrews 6. Because Hebrews 6 seems to say that if we sin after we've come to the knowledge of the truth, we're going to bust hell wide open. That's what you hear people preach, but that, that's... Absolutely not what that says. But again, it takes time to unravel and, 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 and unlearn a lot of these things. Yes, brother. Sure. That verse is like 7, 8, 9, and 10 that triggers that speaking practically and Um, <laughs> well said. One way to, to communicate that as well is, especially in Romans, when we look at, at the word sin, we often think of it as a verb, an action word. And, and many more times than not, the word sin in Romans is a noun. It's not speaking of something you do. It's speaking of a condition you have or had or were. Okay? Let me... <clears throat> Amen. When we get to the section about the new birth, 
And we're going to talk a little bit about it tonight, if, if I can get through talking about this and get to it, amen. But we talk about the new birth. One of the key things you've got to realize there is that's a literal experience, not figurative. When you were born again, you were born again a second time from a different seed that you were born from originally. And that new seed produced not a refurbished spirit in you, it produced a brand new spirit in you. Okay? It's very important. Because that's where we received our new identity, that's where we received our oneness with God, that's where we received our, our uh, eternal life, on and on and on. Again, there's a lot to be unraveled there. There's a lot to be explained there. And we're going to do it just like we've been doing all this stuff about discipleship. Verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. We're not just going to try to stretch something to fit and, and whatever, right? But let me, <clears throat> and I feel like the Holy Spirit's prompted me to say this, and, and we will repeat this, okay? But when you are born again, the Bible says you become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Notice become, not, not are given like you've got a righteousness card. no. Righteousness is as much a part of my born-again spirit as brown eyes are to my physical body. I was born with brown eyes physically, and when I was born again, one of the attributes of my newly born-again spirit is that I am just as right before God in the eyes of God as Jesus Himself. Because it is Jesus' righteousness that I became, I was given that standing, I was given that identity as a free gift. Okay? Are you with me? Now, there are two other related words that are often thrown around in Christianity as being synonymous with one another. And although they are related, they are not synonymous. Synonymous would, say, would mean to mean the same thing. And those other two words are the words godliness and holiness. So I see some of you taking notes. If you'd like to write these three words down, write down the word righteousness write down the word godliness and write down the word holiness. Okay? Righteousness, godliness, holiness. Now as you're writing those words down, I think I may have mentioned this already, but let me mention it again. More times than not, and I, that might be an exaggeration, but I just believe in the, in, the, in the goodness and the good-heartedness of God's people. More times than not, the division and the disagreements that exist in the body of Christ can be traced back to a different understanding of, of what a word means. Okay? Sanctification doesn't mean the same thing to every born-again believer. That's sad because we have biblical definitions of the original word when it was spoken to us by the Holy Spirit using the Greek language as, as, a, as a vehicle to communicate what, he, what Father God means by sanctification. Back to reconciling. Remember we said reconciling is when you, what you think you've got in the checkbook, what the statement says you have, and you're bringing those two into alignment. So if God means one thing by sanctification, and you mean another thing by sanctification, we've got to bring our understanding of what sanctification really is into alignment with what God says it is, with what God means. Are you following me? All right. So we sling these words around. We sling these words around as if they all mean the same thing but they simply do not. Okay? And here is the key difference. Righteousness is a state of being. 
If you have been born again, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It is something that you be. Okay? Now, as someone who has been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you now have the opportunity to exercise yourself towards godliness. And that's what brother was saying over here. The active, the trying, something that we go after. Now, this word godliness, it is a unique word because if you look at it in the Scriptures, the G in godliness is never capitalized. And that always bothered me. I personalize, I capitalize personal pronouns. If I'm, if I'm writing something and, it's, and I'm using he for God, I capitalize the H. And that always bothered me until I did some research. The word godliness that we find in Scripture doesn't have God or any name of God in it. It's the Greek word Eusebia. And it, it means piety. It, it means uh, devotion. It means commitment. So the idea behind godliness, and, and, and so here, here is how I like to say it. Okay, Godliness is all the things that you do now because you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Coming to church is exercising godliness. Reading your Bible is exercising godliness. Are you following me now? Come into a class like you, you're here tonight. This is exercising godliness. These are the things that you do. These are the things that you pursue. These are the things that you put effort towards that are, that are positive, that are pleasing to God. You're exercising yourself towards godliness. Okay? Now, holiness, all the things that you do not do because you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's all the jokes you don't tell anymore. It's all the movies you don't watch anymore. It's all the places you don't go anymore. It's all the uh, other behaviors just across the board, what have you, that we don't participate anymore. Holiness, the idea behind holiness is that we're separating ourselves from the contamination that's in this world all around us. Okay? Holiness, like godliness, is a state of doing. It's something you do. Holiness is something you do. Godliness is something you do. Righteousness is something you be. Okay? Now, as is the case with many things in sound doctrine, or unsound doctrine, I guess I should say, is that we have these things, you know, people have some understanding of these things, but they have the tail wagging the dog. In other words, they have them reversed as, as to which one is dependent upon the other. Are you still with Pastor Mark this evening? Okay? I, I would have, I, I don't, Listen, all this is from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. When we get there, I'll show you Scriptures on every bit of this. Just let me just share from my heart, off the top of my heart, where the Holy Spirit's bringing this, okay? All right? But and I'm thankful the Holy Spirit showed me this. I would have, I, would have, I, I don't know how much money I would have had when, when I was younger to do it, but I would have given somebody a large sum of money to tell me this because I struggle with these things. I struggle desperately with these things. I lived uh, under a lot of guilt and, and, and condemnation uh, you know, in my life because I didn't understand these things. Because this was, I had the tail wagging the dog. It was explained to me that my righteousness, my right standing with God was based upon what I've done for God lately. It was based upon my holiness and my godliness. That is not accurate. Let me say it again. 
Righteousness is a state of being. It's not based upon what you do or what I do. It's based upon what Jesus has done for us. It's based upon what became true of us when we were born from, his, from above, born of His Spirit, born of His seed. Amen. We became something through that experience that we were not before. We became right before God in the eyes of God, seated with Jesus in heavenly places. We became one with Him. We, we became one spirit with Him. I could go on and on and I will. There's a day coming when I will. I'm just giving you a, a, a cliff note overview of all these things. So holiness is all the things that we don't do anymore because we've been made righteous. And godliness is all the things that we do now because we've been made righteous. It's not my righteousness dependent upon my holiness and my godliness. My righteousness is dependent upon what Jesus did for me on the cross and gave to me as a free gift when I received it by faith. So godliness and holiness are in response to the righteousness and the gift of righteousness, the abundance of grace, Romans 5 says, and the righteousness that I have become. Amen. Now sin is still sin, my brother, my sister. God is still holy. He's still a just God. Again, I'm just, if we were at row 47 right there, I'm going to go to row 52. Jesus was one sacrifice for all sin for all time. He didn't just cleanse you of the sin you had committed up until the point that, that, that you asked Him into your heart and you were born again. He didn't come to cover over your sin. Remember what John the Baptist said? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to cover over the sin of the world. Is that what He said? Who comes to take away. He took it away and removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. Never to be held against you. You see, when Jesus forgave you and cleansed you and took away your sin, He took away all of it, past, present, and future. You have already been forgiven for sin that you haven't committed yet. And I know people almost suck the air out of the room and I... You can't tell people that. Well, I just did. Because what the Bible teaches us is that this will not become an excuse for us to sin if we really embrace it. And by the way, those who throw that lame excuse around, well, they'll just use it for an excuse to sin. When did we ever need an excuse to sin? That's such a lame argument. But 1 John says this, 1 John 3 says this, if you have this hope in your heart, it will motivate you to purify your life, godliness, holiness, even as Christ is pure. Guilt, shame, condemnation, and the manipulation that those things are, they are, they are no longer in my toolbox. Enough of this already. Enough of this already. If you're, if you're a part of a church, I know some of you, you know, a lot of you here tonight are from the foundry and maybe you, you came from a church and you're thinking about going back to your home church. Listen, if all they ever talk about is guilt, shame, and condemnation trying to manipulate you into doing right, run for your life. Run from that place. It's, it's, it's wrong. Trying to make you feel bad, threaten you with hell, try to get you to come to the altar. That's not what motivates us to do right. What motivates us to purify our lives, even as Christ is pure, is when we understand what He's done for us. Titus 2 says, grace will teach us to live righteously, right? We've been made righteous. We just need to learn how to live righteous. We need to learn how to live in agreement with who we are. 
We've been living in agreement with somebody that's dead and buried in an unmarked grave. We're not even that person anymore, but because we know more about that person and we still think more like that person, we tend to still live like that person even though we're not that person anymore. You became a new creation in Christ Jesus. So what you find in Scripture then are things like this. Not be righteous. We, we, in Scripture, we find be holy, right? For God is holy. Go, go, go do this. Go strive for, for this, right? But when it comes to righteousness, this is one of my favorites. Are you ready? Awake to righteousness. <laughs> Awake to it. Awake to it. We'll, we'll, we'll look at a verse maybe tonight, maybe next week. Amen. But... You ever heard the study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed? Right, the divine word. Okay. Notice it says study to show yourself approved. It doesn't say study so God will approve of you. He's you're already approved. We're just learning how to show the approval that we've already been given, and we're and we're learning how to live according to the righteousness we've already been made. Amen. Amen. Now, praise God. I know that there are a lot of questions and, you know, it's like, okay, Pastor, I like what you, you know, what you're saying there, but what about this? What about that? That's when you're just going to have to hang in here, okay? And, and, and let me and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God build these things into your life. I don't think I finished my little brief testimony a while ago, right? I wanted to know the truth because I wanted to teach it to my children. I didn't want them to be as confused as I was. I wanted them to know the truth. I wanted John, Mark, and Bethany to know what was what. Because here's what you've got to understand, right? This whole agree to disagree the devil laughs his backside off at us with that kind of mess. Because what we're saying is, in essence, well, you know, it's either my truth or your truth, or maybe God's confused. Are you kidding me? Men are confused about these things, but I'm telling you, God is not. And He is not confused in His Word. I was um, kind of being a big baby. Listen, if... Sometimes I tell you things twice on purpose. Sometimes, to be honest with you, I, know, I don't think I've said this to you yet, but um, I said it to somebody recently, so if it's you, that's all right. <laughs> Praise God. My wife and I are working off of very little sleep, not just this last night, but this whole week. Praise God. Um, but we had some, some tough losses. People in the church that we were praying and believing God for to be healed, and they went to heaven, and I, it was if you're facing the pulpit, I was laying in the floor, kind of more to the right of it, out there in the dark, and just kind of have myself a little pity party and whining to God about it and crying about it. And if you've ever heard this expression, you know, well, you know, one day we get to heaven. One day we get to heaven, God'll. Answer these questions for us. Anybody ever? Am I the only one? 
One day, man, was, and I, I, I heard myself. I was, you know, I just kind of crying out to him and, and stuff. And I said, I said, well, Father, you know, I'm just, I just, none of this makes sense to me. And I, you know, I'm just trying to learn here and be a good leader for your people, a good servant for your people. But I guess one day when I get to heaven, you'll answer these questions for me. And clear as a bell, this is what he said to me. He said, if you have any questions remaining on that day, I will answer them chapter and verse from the Bible you have right now. Uh, you talk about somebody kind of getting real right quick. Amen? If you have any questions, I will answer them chapter and verse from the Bible you have right now. See, we think, God, why did this happen? He's going to tell us some convoluted answer that we don't have any access to. No. He'll tell you straight from the Bible. Now, why am I telling you that? If we have questions, He has answers. Right now. It's a lie from the enemy that says you've got to wait to heaven to know this. You've got to wait to heaven. You've got to wait till you get to heaven to find out the answers about salvation. You've got to wait till you get to heaven to find out these things about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and, and blah. Because this one says that and this one says no and yes and blah. You do not have to wait till you get to heaven to find out the truth about all that. Holy Spirit's here to lead us and guide us into all truth. Amen? All right. Well, praise God. We spend a little time on it. Yeah, can you imagine? Can, you know, can you imagine being that guy? You know, everybody on their face before God's throne. That one dude down at the down at the end of the row with his clipboard. Um, Father, back in 1973, uh, we, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't foresee that happening either, my brother. Praise God. All right. Yes, ma'am, please. Okay. Amen. Amen. Well, you're welcome, sister. And if you stay tuned, because there's there's a there's a lot of answers coming. Amen. Well, since you're correcting yourself, can I just correct you a little further? <laughs> Ephesians two says you're in heaven right now. You're seated with Him in heavenly places, right? You know, it's like, oh, you're just trying to make it to heaven. Trying to make it to heaven? You're already there, dude. I mean, you know, when are we going to wake to this? When are we going to realize this? This is why the enemy is, is not being put in his place. This is why the church is, is, is not um, rising up and doing what the church is here on this earth to do is, is because, you know, we're we too busy, you know, arguing with one another about which, what's up and, and amen, praise God. All right, let me get. Everybody blessed? Everybody good? Stay tuned. Like I said, more, much, 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 much more to come on all of that. All right? So, um, we're, of course, discipleship class, council training class, class number four. We're on this fifth point about discipleship, and we said that discipleship is the bridge that carries you from salvation into the fulfillment of your purpose and God-given destiny. Okay? Salvation, discipleship is the bridge that carries you from salvation. That's a point of entry. That's where you enter into the kingdom. Jesus said you cannot see the kingdom, nor will you be able to enter the kingdom unless you are born again. 
And so when we are born again, this is when we enter into the kingdom. And when we enter into the kingdom, now the destiny that we were given before we were formed in our mother's wombs has been opened up to us. The ability to fulfill that destiny has been laid out now before us. The other thing we said here is that every born-again believer has been called to do the work of the ministry. Every born-again believer has been called to do the work of the ministry. Now, we talked last week um, about a nation of priests. And I had in my notes to review some of that, but I think I'm going to forego that tonight since we spent some time uh, on stuff we won't get to until a a bit later. And um, just the key thing that I want to remind you of is that as a born-again believer, out of 1 Peter 2, uh, 9, 10, is that you are a chosen generation. Um, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Um, praise God. Related to what we began the class with tonight, And what we've been talking about, for those of you who are able to hang around on Wednesday evenings for the main service here at Heritage, is that Abraham's faith is the example of faith that we're to learn from and follow. So much so that he is the father of faith, and we're to follow in his footsteps of faith. And so what was it that Abraham believed? Abraham believed God had made him something that he could never make himself. God said, Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. Listen very carefully to that now. I have made you the father of many nations. Let me tell you what Abraham heard for years. Abraham heard God say, I will make you the father of many nations. God did not say, Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations. God said, Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. And Abraham's example of faith is one that we're to understand and follow is because Abraham believed God made him something that there was absolutely no physical proof he had become but he believed it anyway. He believed that God made him something that he could never make himself. How does that pertain to our righteousness? Amen. There's no way you could ever make yourself right before God in the eyes of God. Righteousness by faith is for you to believe that God has made you the righteousness of Jesus himself, given you that standard, given you that standing, that made you that standing, right? That he has made you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, right? Even if, listen to me now, even if there's no evidence or proof that it's true about you right now, you believe it because God said it, not because you're currently displaying it in your behavior. This is righteousness by faith. So notice, he didn't say you will be a chosen generation. Just keep coming to Pastor Mark's class. Just keep going to Sunday school. Just keep reading your Bible. Just keep trying to do good. And one of these days you'll make it and and you'll get your chosen generation card. No. If you are a born-again believer, you are. You are. This is who you are. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That nation of priests that Father God has always longed for to be here on planet Earth. Turn with me to John, the sev- John chapter 17. John the 17th chapter. Please, if you will. John chapter 17. So, we've been saved for a purpose. Amen? 
Father went to extreme lengths and extreme costs to save us. And He did that for a purpose. Amen. And that primary purpose is for you and for me to be able to fellowship with Him. Our first class, we talked out of, looked at that passage in, the, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, where all effective ministry is an extension of your daily walk, your personal fellowship with your Creator Father. Amen. So your purpose involves ministry, absolutely, but that in and of itself can never be carried out effectively apart from the fellowship, apart from walking with Jesus. And then from that daily walk proceeds from that effective ministry. Now, John chapter 17 is perhaps the most unique chapter in all of the Gospels. And therefore, you could make a case for it to be among the most unique chapters in all the Word of God. We know from Scripture that Jesus was a man of prayer. We know sometimes He would pray all night. We know sometimes He would rise, uh, you know, wake up long before daylight and go out to be alone to pray. But we have very little um, by way of what those prayers and those conversations that He had with God were like with this exception. In John the 17th chapter, we have recorded for us a prayer that Jesus prayed, amen, and we see that He began by praying for Himself. So yes, it's okay for you to pray for yourself. We see then that He prayed for those who were the closest to Him, His uh, twelve disciples. And then He prayed for you and me. He prayed for all of those who would believe on Him because that initial group would go and preach the Gospel. Amen. There's a lot going on in our world today with tracing your, your genetics, tracing back your roots, your family tree, your, your heredity, uh, what have you. I've got a friend that um, has found over 3,000 of his descendants. Amen. Now, I don't know, can, can we talk about this for a minute? I, I, I don't know all of that about my biological family. I know, of course, my mom and dad, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. I haven't really taken the time to develop it further from there. But I'll tell you what I'm most interested in, and um, I don't think I'll be able to see it and know it uh, until I get to heaven one day, and that is what I call my spiritual genealogy. In other words, the pastor who preached the night I was born again, who preached for him to be born again, who preached for that individual to be born again? Who preached for that individual to be born again? Who told that person about Jesus so that she or he could be born again? And, and you can follow that all the way back to one of the holy apostles. Amen. You can follow that all the way back. Now, we know that there were arguments about these things in, in Corinth. And um, you know they said, well, I got saved under Apollos' ministry. I got saved under Paul's ministry. And... Paul tends to be a more higher-ranking uh, you know, uh, member in the body of Christ, and so that somehow gave them more clout. I, the Lord knows my heart, and I hope you know my heart. It has, it has nothing to do with competition or you know, who I'm a direct descendant of. I'm a direct descendant of God the Father born of the incorruptible seed of His Word. That's, that's who I descended from. 
the, the point from my curiosity about that is gratitude. Amen. It's gratitude. It's gratitude. Because somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody else who told somebody else and somebody finally came to me, right, in 1972 um, and I heard the gospel and was born again. Amen. Amen. All right. So when Jesus says, He prays first for Himself and then for that, that close inner circle and then for all those who will believe because these men were going to go and preach, right? He's praying for me and you. Jesus prayed for you in the garden before His crucifixion. And we have that recorded for us in the 17th chapter of John. Now, let me put uh, a section of this up because this is what John says. He says, I have given them Your Word. He's talking to His Father. Father, I have given them Your Word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, there's that word sanctify. Let's agree here on a basic definition. It means to be set apart from and unto. Alright? So sanctify them. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, sister. Amen. Amen. For those of you who are wondering what's going on, we had a little technical issue here. Praise God. All right, let's go back to play. Thank you, sister. All right. And um, <laughs> that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify. Sanctify means to be set apart from, for, or from and to. A lot of times we think about sanctify, we only think about what we're being set apart from. It's we're set apart from one thing to another. Set apart from the world, set apart unto God, right? Simple way to, to illustrate this is my wife um, has some dishes that are sanctified. We eat off of them one time a year at Christmas. So they're not just set apart from ribs on the 4th of July, they're set apart to the turkey and ham for Christmas. You see what I'm saying? So sanctify means set apart from one thing unto another. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, one of the key things that I want you to see from this passage is, and, and I've had, I had somebody ask me one time because I say this phrase a lot, we are in the world but we are not of the world. Now, there's, there's no specific Bible verse that, that exactly says we are in the world but not of the world, but that is exactly what Jesus said in all of those verses right there. That we're here and we're in this world, but we're not of this world in the same way that He was not of this world. We've been born from above, right? We, we've been, been born from a different seed than other folks on planet earth who have not been born of this incorruptible seed and experienced the new birth. But the other thing that I want you to see here is that when Father prayed for that inner circle and then for us, He was praying not for Father to take us out of the world, 
but to leave us here in the world even though we're not of it or from it. Amen? And clearly, He did that so that we could then make a difference in this world. If we kept reading, we would see it again in John 17, 18. As you sent Me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, most of last class was spent... And if you, you can watch it on, online or we, you know, amen, there's other ways to access it if you're just new to the class here or, on, or, or, or watching uh, through the internet. Um, I'm not going to try to go back over all of that. But we looked at how Jesus was sent. Destroy the works of the devil. The, the ministry platform. The planks in that ministry platform. And so as He was sent, this is the same way that we have now been sent. All the way down to He came from another world to this world. We come from another world to this world. Praise God. Now, let's go to verse 23. He says, I in them, so Jesus in you, you in me, Father. So notice what He's saying here. Jesus is saying, Father, you're in me and I'm in them. That they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know. If you underline things in your Bible and you don't mind underlining this, would you do me a favor and underline that phrase, that the world may know? Amen. That happens to be the tagline for this church, Heritage Christian Center, that the world may know. Amen. Jesus said that the world may know. So we're in this world, not of this world, so that we can be used as instruments to bring knowledge to this world of a God who loves them. Are you seeing this? Okay. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Man, that's strong right there, isn't it? That's strong. I want you to file that away because when we get to 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul in verse 14 is going to use a state, he's going to make a statement. He's going to say, The love of Christ constraineth me. King James Version says constraineth. New King James Version says compels. And what he's literally saying there is that his understanding of the love of God for humanity has created this situation in his life where he only has one focus. He only has one objective. Amen. And so here we see basis for that. Here we see uh, roots for that. Amen. Now, some in the body of Christ want to be like the world. That's not us though, amen? Some in the body of Christ are only interested in escaping the world one day. They've got this mentality that they're just going to kind of, you know, uh, hold up within the four walls of the church and, 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 and do their thing with Jesus and, and hold on to the end. They're just looking for a way out, a way of escape. Okay? But Jesus is looking for people who are not interested in being like the world and aren't trying to escape the world, but are willing through the power of His name to change the world. To change the world. Amen. Now, let's do this. Let's go to John chapter 3, verse number 1. John chapter 3 and verse number 1. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Are you okay tonight? Amen. 
I am, I am finer than a frog's hair. I just want to make sure everybody's all right. Y'all seem a little, you seem a little subdued tonight. Did I, did I lay too much on you at the beginning? All right. It is a lot to take in, isn't it? All right. John chapter three and um, verse number one. Praise God. Now. We have four Gospels, as they're referred to, um, in the Bible, the first four books of the New Testament. I'm sure you know them as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see that each one of these Gospels, um, they're they're written from uh, the perspective of of the individual the Holy Spirit used. Um, uh, just to give you an example, um, Luke was a physician. He was a, he was a medical doctor in his day. And so we have details about healings and miracles in the Gospel of Luke that we don't have in the other Gospels. And that's because when the Holy Spirit inspired this word through Luke, he used Luke as um, an, an instrument, if you will, um, to, write the, to, to write these words. So, if you've read the four Gospels, you know that the one that is most different is the Gospel of John. And that's because John was, I mean no, uh, how do I say this? I'm not trying to trivialize or oversimplify this, but John was Jesus' best friend. None of the disciples were closer to Jesus than John. John is known for his love. He is referred to as John the Beloved. Now, For those of you who are new to a lot of this, John the Beloved is not John the Baptist. That's two different people all together in the same way that we probably have more than, you know, uh, one name in here that other people, you know, have in common with you. One John, one Mark, one Michael, what have you. Um, The same was the case in their day. John the Beloved was a fisherman. He was brother to James and had a fishing business, and Jesus called him to make him a fisher of men. He was not a soft man by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, him and his brother were known as sons of thunder. Exactly what that means, I don't know, but it kind of sounds like some, uh, some pretty, uh, you know, pretty bra- bra- brawny or whatever kind of men, right? And yet, we see John turn into this apostle of love. And it was because of this great revelation that he had of the love of God. In the Gospel that bears his name, John never referred to himself by name. He referred to himself as the one whom the Lord loved. Amen. I would recommend that you take a page out of John's playbook. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, don't wait till in the morning if you go to the restroom before you leave here or before going to service, right? Just look yourself straight in the eye in the mirror and say, I'm the one the Lord loves. 
I'm that disciple that he loves. Amen. It wasn't a statement of arrogance. It was a confession. It was a renewing of the mind. And it was something that became very real to John. If you compare John and Peter and what we know about them in Scripture, it seems to me that Peter's confidence rested in Peter's love for Jesus. <laughs> Did you hear me? It seems to me that Peter's confidence rested in Peter's love for Jesus. He was always talking about what he was going to do. He was always talking about how he was going to this and over my dead body and they'll never take you and I'll never deny you. I'll die with you if I have to, Jesus, right? He was always boasting and he was always talking about his love for Jesus. John, on the other hand, was always talking about Jesus' love for him. He was always talking about how much Jesus loved him. Not his love for Jesus. I'm not saying your love for Jesus isn't important. It is. I caught myself several years ago saying over and over again, Jesus, I love you. Father, I love you. Lord, you're just my worship. If you think I'm saying don't do that, you're misunderstanding me. But the Holy Spirit began to challenge me to talk about thanking him for loving me. Instead of saying, I love you, Lord, all the time, I kind of went more heavily on the side of, Father, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for always believing the best about me. Thank you for never giving up on me. Right? Amen. Right? And so this was, because listen to me, please. Your love for Him is important. But when you stand before Him one day, do not be foolish enough to boast about your love for Him. Because when we stand before Him one day, what will give us boldness on the day of judgment is not how much we love Jesus on planet earth, but how much Jesus loved us our entire lives. Amen? So John was the apostle of love. And he was close to Jesus. We even see that Peter, James, and John, for instance, they they were in on things that the other disciples weren't in on. I don't understand that. I just know Jesus knows what's right and Jesus knows what's best. And if He pulled those three aside and showed them things that He didn't show the other ones, there was a reason for it and I trust Him. But when it comes to Jesus' crucifixion, obviously the Holy Spirit could have inspired somebody that was never there to tell us the details but we know what we know about that night because John the Beloved didn't run. He was there. He was there at the foot of the cross. And in spite of Jesus having half-brothers mothered by Mary like Jesus was, but fathered by Joseph like Jesus was not, in spite of Jesus having half-brothers, Mary having other children she gave birth to, from the cross, Jesus gave responsibility for His mom to His best friend John. History has it that they lived out their final days together on a hill in Ephesus and attended the church there that Timothy pastored. After having multiple attempts to execute Him fail, at one point they even tried to boil John alive in oil. But they couldn't kill him. They couldn't kill him because he had no fear. And he had no fear because he had perfect love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So they decided a fate for him worse than death. They sent him to the Isle of Patmos. Think Alcatraz without the buildings and without the guards the worst of the worst criminals, 
dog eat dog, kill or be killed. They sent John there to starve to death or be killed by the demon-possessed, insane criminals that they couldn't do anything with. And the Bible says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he wrote the book of Revelation on that prison island. Amen. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful? Wouldn't hurt my feelings at all if whoever John preached to and preached to and preached to and preached to finally preached to me. That sounds silly, I guess, but allow me a brief moment of childishness. Praise God. So John saw things. He knew things. He understood things. He had insight that other people didn't have. Now listen to me, please. I'm not just telling you this to give you some backdrop on on John's life, the Lord wants to have that same kind of relationship with you. Amen. You draw near to Him. He'll talk to you. He'll show you things. He'll whisper things in your ear. He'll reveal things to you. And it's not that He's playing favorites. It's just that some people choose to give Him place in their lives that other people choose not to give. John chose to give Jesus a place that other folks chose not to give. And because of that, he wasn't afraid when everybody else was the night that Jesus was arrested. Now, I don't know exactly how John came to the information that's contained in John chapter 3. But what I do know is it's the only gospel account that contains it, which is somewhat interesting to me given its extreme importance. So let's begin. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Alright, let's stop for a moment. There were three divisions, branches. Actually, the, the, the official terminology is sect, S-E-C-T, sectarian, sect. I don't know if I'm saying that right. The idea is that we might think of it this way in our modern day. We might think of it as a denomination. But in the Jewish religion, there were three distinct sects or denominations. You had the Pharisees, of which Nicodemus was one. You had the Sadducees, excuse me, you had the Sadducees. And then you had the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. Okay. Um, to give you some idea about the Essenes, all right, John the Baptist would fall into that category. These were extremists, man. These were, you know just gung-ho, out-in-the-wilderness kind of folks, right? And if I'm butchering this, and there's doctors of theology watching this, just amen, just love me through it. All right, I'm just trying to give you an overview here. <clears throat> the Sadducees were the wealthy, elite religious leaders. The primary difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe 
in, in miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead and, 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 and these kinds of things. Okay? The Pharisees, on the other hand, they did believe in miracles. They did believe even in the resurrection of someone who had physically died. With this one um, sidebar, side note. That was if the person was raised from the dead within a three-day window. Even the Pharisees, after three days, did not believe it was possible for someone to be raised from the dead. This is why Jesus waited to the fourth day to go raise His friend Lazarus from the dead. If you do the math, Jesus did not drag His feet to wait for Lazarus to die. If you understand how long it would have taken for them to come from Bethany to where Jesus was and ask Him to go and pray for Lazarus, right? you will see that the timing of it was Lazarus was already dead. Obviously, Jesus was being led by the Spirit, the voice of His Father. He didn't do anything unless His Father told Him to do it. And so it was His Father who told Him to wait. And then four days later, He went and raised Him from the dead. And this is when He made that great declaration with God, all things are possible even if the dude's been dead four days. Okay? Now, the Pharisees began as a sect of Judaism because they began to realize that the common man, most of which could not read or write, or most of whom could not read or write, that, that they, they, no one was explaining to them the Word of God so that they could follow it and, and abide by it and, and benefit from it. And so the Pharisees began with these noble intentions to help the common man um, you know, hear and know and, and, and be able to do and live by the Word of God, the Old Testament. But as is the case with a lot of you know, noble efforts, you know, causes begin with good intentions, many of them had become religious sticks in the mud, just like their Sadducee counterparts. They were very territorial. They had immense power, immense control. They were revered. Um, they were a sight to see. Uh, with their phylacteries. They had these things that came out in front of their, their, their heads. They wore around their heads and, and it would hang out and dangle here in front of their heads and it had Bible verses written on them because the Bible said to keep the Word of God in front of your eyes. I mean, they were, they were decked out, dude. And, and, and they thought they were it on a stick. And of course, Jesus and that whole religious spirit, they just didn't jive. And so... The religious establishment threatened people with expulsion from, we're going we're to kick you out of the synagogue if you're seen following Jesus. You've got to make a choice. So this is why I believe Nicodemus came to Jesus by cover of darkness. He came at night. He came at night. Okay. One way you can remember that is Nick at night. Okay. He comes at night. I couldn't resist. I, I had this thing going on in my head. And Holy Spirit, you probably told me not to say that, so forgive me. Amen. <laughs> he comes at night. A very powerful man. Risking everything. 
He would have been groomed for this position since he was a little boy. Pharisees could quote the Old Testament. Some of them could quote it backwards. They could start at Malachi and quote it backwards as to how trained they were in the Scriptures. Because he had to get some answers. This is what's so beautiful about this. He wanted to know some things. So he comes to Jesus by night and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know. Now that tells me right there that there are other folks, and somehow he drew the short straw maybe, I don't know, as the one who was going to go and try to talk to Jesus and see what he could figure out. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs. Signs means miracles. Undeniable miracles that these men had witnessed take place in front of them. This wasn't some kind of trickery, some kind of, you know, uh, uh, scam or something where, you know, like for instance, they watched people that were crippled and, and they knew the accident that crippled them be healed by Jesus. They watched people who were born blind that were now blind adults that had never seen a day in their life that didn't even have eyeballs in their heads that Jesus healed them. That Jesus healed them, right? And Jesus says, we know you have to be a teacher from God to do the miracles that I have witnessed, that we have witnessed you doing. Now this is interesting that they said this because the religious establishment was not denying Jesus did miracles. They were not denying Jesus cast out miracles. They were saying He's doing it not by the power of God, but by the power of the devil. I mean, Jesus' own enemies didn't deny the miracles that He performed. It was just that he's not doing it with the power of God, he's doing it with the power of the devil. Well, Nicodemus knew better than that. He knew enough about the devil to know that the devil didn't heal peoples like that. You follow what I'm saying? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, uh, that wasn't the devil's business, that wasn't the devil's work. Alright? Now, it's important for us before we go any further to understand why Nicodemus comes to Jesus? What is the question he's asking? Could I paraphrase it for you? Could I put it in, in, in maybe a, a little clearer terminology? Jesus, how in the world are you doing what you're doing? How, how is this possible? How are you doing these things? Okay? Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now let's get something straight before we go any further. Jesus knows how to answer the question you don't know how to ask. I'm sure when he says this to Nicodemus, Nicodemus starts having some of these thoughts going on in his mind like, they told you he was a nut. They told you that he was irrational. They told you that he doesn't make any sense with what he says, right? Because it's almost as if they're having two separate conversations. Nicodemus says, Jesus, we, you know, I think he's, he's, he's being nice here. You know, he's, he's trying to maybe a touch of flattery. You know, rabbi, teacher is using kind words. We know you're from God. Don't be threatened by me. I'm not here to try to find another way to trick you up and embarrass you. 
We know you come from God. We know the signs that you do, the miracles that you perform couldn't be done by you unless God was with you. Jesus said no one will ever see the kingdom unless they're born of God. Unless they're born again, I'm sorry. Alright, now, let's, let's put some things together here. Come on now, bring your hearts to attention. Don't zone out on me now. Because what Jesus just did, whether we understand it or not, is He just gave him the answer. And the answer is the miracles are taking place in people's lives because the kingdom of God that was once three heavens away and almost impossible to access is now alive and well on planet earth. Those people are being healed by the government of God. They're being healed by the rule and reign and resources of the kingdom of God upon the earth. It is the power and the authority and the government of God that is doing in these men's and women's lives what Nicodemus and his buddies were witnessing. But Jesus said you will never see it unless you're born again. Nicodemus said to him, probably scratching his head is the way I imagine it, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now here is a classic mistake religion makes practically every time. And that classic mistake is trying to understand things that are spiritual by making them something physical or fleshly. When Jesus says, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom, Nicodemus' mind automatically went, because that was his mindset, his mind automatically went to, how can a full-grown man go back inside his mother's womb and be born a second time? He's thinking something that's physical. Jesus answered, I'm sorry Nicodemus, I misunderstood your question. Is that what he said? He said, most assuredly. Jesus didn't back down. He doubled down. And pardon the gambling expression. You understand what I'm saying? You know, is it wasn't like Jesus, okay, okay, I, I can see I just went in over your head there, uh, Nicodemus. I, I apologize. Let me, let, me, let me step back here for a minute and try to explain this. No, it's not what he did. He says, most assuredly, New wins of the International Translation. You ready? Buddy, whether you understand this or not, this is how it is. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard people take that born of water, born of the Spirit, and they've developed all kinds of teachings, all kinds of doctrines, all kinds of sermons around that. I'm not saying they're wrong. Because... The, water, the Word of God is referred to as water and, 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 and these sorts of things. I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's not the context here. When we were all born physically, we were born of water. Before I was born on planet Earth, my mama's water broke. Water was the vehicle from which I passed from her womb into this uh, uh, oxygen-filled atmosphere called planet earth. Amen? So when Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, he's saying you must be born physically and spiritually. 
You must be born naturally and then you must be born of the Spirit. He's talking about the second birth. He's talking about being born again, being born a second time. But not born a second time of water, not born a second time from a female's womb, but born a second time from the womb of the Spirit. Amen. And now he adds, unless he's born of water and the Spirit, he goes from being able to see it to being able to enter. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, we're going to build on a lot of this later, but I just want to go ahead and, and, and point out to you that the only way into the kingdom of God is through the new birth. You are either born into the kingdom through the new birth, the second birth, or you don't enter the kingdom. There's no other way in. We'll explain more about that in the days to come. Jesus goes on to say, that which is born of the flesh, remember, born of water, born of the Spirit, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. One of the most important things you can ever learn is the difference between things that are flesh and things that are spirit. The enemy of your soul loves to blur those lines. He loves to try to confuse us when it comes to things that are of the flesh and things that are of the spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus was marveling, all right. This was, this was astonishing to him. This, this was mind-boggling to him. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, relax. Don't, don't let this be too much for you. Don't marvel at this and miss it. When I say to you, you must be born again. Listen very carefully. Verse 8. The wind blows where it, lists, uh, where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Now, I may be wrong on this. I spent a lot of time in, in, in these verses, right? This is how I picture, if I could just play the role of Nicodemus for a moment, right? I picture him throwing up his hands almost in, in, in frustration or even exasperation, right? I mean, he's like, Hold on a minute, Jesus. How is this possible? How can this be? Right? And Jesus fires right back in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is clearly saying, Nicodemus, you should know by now the difference between flesh and spirit. But he didn't. <coughs> Excuse me. He didn't. He didn't understand it. Now, let me go back. Praise God. We need to finish this tonight. <clears throat> you still with me? Verse 8 is a key verse in all of this. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. 
So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I don't think I've ever taught this exactly this way in this order. But thank you, Holy Spirit. It is a genius way of doing it. Are you ready? Anybody in here born of the Spirit? Anybody in here been born again? All right. So Jesus just said something very important about you. Right? If you've been born of the Spirit, and what He just said is true of everyone who's born of the Spirit, when Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but can't tell where it comes from and where it goes, He's talking about you. He's talking about something that is true about you. Not just true about Him, true about you. It's true of everyone who's born of the Spirit. So what in the world is He saying? He's answering Nicodemus' question for him. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with what question? Basically, he's saying, Jesus, we've seen you do miracles, buddy, but we don't know how you're doing them. We know you have to come from God. See, what the, what the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders understood is a specific model. They understood the model of the prophet that we talked about last week where God specifically chose a prophet, He put a portion of His Spirit upon that prophet, and that God's Spirit upon that prophet empowered that prophet to operate in that office. And in the office of a prophet, we see people in the uh, Old Testament that were healed. We see people raised from the dead. And we see food uh, supernaturally multiplied by the anointing of God's Spirit, the portion of God's Spirit placed upon those prophets and, and, and what they did. And so that is Nicodemus's um, understanding. Are you with me? That is how Nicodemus uh, looked at these things. That, that was what he knew about these things. But Jesus didn't quite fit that model. Jesus didn't quite fit into one of those molds. He, he didn't go to their schools. He wasn't an understudy of this one and that one. And, 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 and he was of questionable birth from the other side of the tracks in Nazareth, so to speak, and, and on and on and on. And so Nicodemus is trying to make him fit a model that he didn't come to fit. He didn't come to fit that model. He came to break that model, amen, and institute a new way of doing things on planet Earth. So how, do we, how are we to understand this, this Scripture then? Is Jesus just speaking some riddle, some, some mystery, some enigma? Well, the Holy Spirit will help us. Amen? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. If I'm sitting in my, uh, in my house and I look out the window of my house and I see uh, the, the large oak tree in my backyard moving around. I see the branches moving. And I look over this way and those two beautiful magnolia trees the Lord blessed me with, I see their branches moving. And then I look around and I see the crepe myrtles that have bloomed all summer. And I see them moving and crepe myrtle blooms drifting down. I don't run to my bedroom to grab my shotgun to see who's out there shaking my trees. I know that it's the wind. I can't see the wind, but I can see the effect the wind is having upon those trees. What brought Nicodemus to Jesus was visible signs. Signs that Nicodemus could see. But they were visible signs coming from an invisible source. 
visible signs coming from an invisible source. Visible signs coming from an invisible source. This is exactly what, what was going on here. Nicodemus could see the, 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 the limbs of the trees move, but he couldn't see the wind, where it was coming from and where it was going, right? That was causing these, these signs to, to be produced in these men's and women's lives. Yes? So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This means that every born-again believer on planet earth has within them the capacity to produce visible signs from an invisible source. You can lay your hands on the sick and the sick will recover without anybody ever seeing a pill bottle, a surgeon's scalpel, an MRI machine. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But the sign will be just as real. Visible signs from an invisible source. Ah, oh, praise God. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Verse 10, And do not know these things. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, let's stop right there for a moment, all right? Let me, all right let's go one more. All right, verse 11 and 12. Do we need to stop now and finish next week, or can you power on through? This is really, really important now. You good? All right, verse 11. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know. Notice Jesus is saying we here. He, 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 remember, Nicodemus began with a we. And Jesus says, you come to me in the name of a we, I come to you in the name of a we. And he wasn't talking about we being him and his disciples, he was talking about we being him, his Father, and the Holy Ghost. Amen? We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? Now what's he saying right here? Think about this very carefully, okay? Let me, he kind of got on Nicodemus here. He's like, Nicodemus, I've been here teaching. I've been here preaching. You've listened to my sermons. I've seen you over there acting like you were taking names of who was here, but you, you weren't just trying to see who was here. You was listening yourself. You've heard me preach. You've heard me teach. You've heard me tell parables. You haven't just watched me do miracles. You've listened to what I've said. And up until this point, son, you haven't listened or believed or received a single word that's come out of my mouth. We've had some things to say. We've had some things to say. And you haven't believed. You haven't received our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, let me, again, Jesus did the majority of His teaching by using parables. He would always tell a story that people could relate to, and in the story, He would package truth from His world. He would take truth and wisdom from His world, bring it down to our level, and present it to us by telling us a story of something in our world that we could relate it to. Are you with me? So when Jesus says this to Nicodemus, listen very carefully now, this is what He's basically saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, up until this point, 
Everything that I've told you from my world, I've used something from your world to illustrate it. And you haven't listened to it, you haven't received it, and you haven't believed it. So how will you ever receive and believe something from my world that there's nothing in your world I can use to relate it to you with? In other words, he's fixed to tell him a truth that he can't use a man had two sons. He can't use a farmer planted some seeds. He can't use a woman lost a coin. He, he, he can't use a story to somehow you know, relate that to him because there's nothing on our earth to relate it to him with. No story to compare it to. No comparable. No parable. Okay? And what was that? Information. What was that wisdom? What was that truth? Verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven. To ascend means to go up. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. I, I vividly remember as, as a young man, teenager, just read this verse over and over again. It's like, Jesus, what are you saying? No, 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 he's not talking about Satan. You're fine. I appreciate your engagement. Amen. See, the reason I couldn't figure this out is because I'm trying to find something on planet Earth that I can relate it to. Right? Let's go back to the original question. Jesus, how are you doing what you're doing? I know that you must be from God because no man could do the signs that you do unless God be with him. Jesus said you're seeing visible miracles, but they're coming from an invisible source. I've told you things from my world by using things in your world to compare them to. You haven't believed it. And now you're asking me a question that's going to require me giving you an answer from my world without anything in your world to compare it to. And that answer is, no one has ascended to heaven, but He who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. What was He saying to Nicodemus? He said, Nicodemus, you see me standing here but while you see me standing here, I'm also seated there. I am here and I am there. I am a go-between this earth and heaven itself. I have one hand in heaven and I have one hand on the earth and the resources of my Father's kingdom are flowing from Him through me into this earth. Amen. He's saying, I am in both places at the same time. And so is everyone who's been born of the Spirit. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Now, in fairness to sister, who 
made the guess that this might be talking about the devil. The Bible certainly talks about him ascending and, the, and these kinds of things. Okay, so that's we'll get those classes and explanations later. So you weren't you weren't that wasn't that wild of a of a stab at it. All right. Ephesians chapter two and verse number four. You're fine. I want to read all of it to you. Matter of fact, I am going to read it all to you. Ephesians chapter two, verse number one. And you, come on now, I'm not trying to treat you like small children. Say it, say it with me. And me. See, you, he's, this is you he's talking about here. And you he made alive who were dead, past tense, in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, past tense, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, offspring of disobedience, among whom also we all once, no longer once, conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, past tense, by nature, there's that, that key word again, were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Just like every other person on planet earth. But God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, but God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, but God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Jesus said this verse 13 to Nicodemus, He was the only one who had ascended up, right? And was there and on planet earth at the same time. But listen, He was the firstborn among many brethren. He's no longer the only begotten Son of God. Jesus was the first man ever born again. He was born from death just as you and me were born from spiritual death and we have now ascended with Him and are seated together with Him in the heavenly places. My brother, my sister, while you sit in this room tonight, you are touching two worlds at the same time. You have a citizenship in heaven and you are an ambassador on planet earth and you have been given the kingdom of God. That kingdom is inside of you and everything that was made available to Jesus and for Him to do Father's will on planet earth has been made available to you and me tonight for us to do Father's will for our lives right here on planet Earth. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. One more time. <laughs> the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. Almost sounds something ninja-like there, doesn't it? I mean, you just slip in there. I've done it before, man. Slipped into a hospital. Somebody lay in there in a coma, asleep, whatever. Man, just slip in there, anoint them with oil, lay hands on them. Sometimes I'll get them by the head, Pam will get them by the feet, man. We just start. <laughs> Amen. Right? Yes, ma'am, we'll slip on out of there, right? Like a ninja, right? 
Everybody told me, man, doctors don't know what happened, right? Don't know what's making that tree move all over the place, right? Amen. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, right? Let's go to this one. No one has ascended to heaven. That's not true anymore. We've ascended now with Him. But He who came down from heaven, Jesus came down. That is the Son of We So did we. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And so are we. Amen. There's a name for the doctrine that we looked at in Ephesians 2. Seated with Jesus, raised up with Jesus. There's a name for that doctrine. You know what, it's, you know what the, that doctrine's called? Salvation. Sozo, yes ma'am. It's salvation. That's what it means to be saved. See, we've been told, well, just to be saved means you've been forgiven for your sins. That even is not, is not accurate. You haven't just been forgiven. Your sins have been taken away. To, 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 to be saved is to be buried with Christ. To be, no, no, excuse me. Thank you, Holy Spirit. To be saved is to be crucified with Christ. To be buried with Christ. To be raised with Christ. And to be seated with Christ. Amen. Far above. Amen. Praise God. Amen. You get anything out of this tonight? Father, thank you. Yes, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you, Father. We've heard some amazing things tonight. And we don't want to be like others who hear these things, Father, and just let it sail out over our heads. We, we want to reach out and grab hold of this by faith. We're the disciple that You love, Father. We're the ones these verses are talking about. And You, He made alive. You're talking to us. You're talking about us. You're referring to things, Father, that are true about every person in this room that's been born again. You're, you're, you're talking about us, Father. Help us recognize this. Help us lay hold of this, Father. Thank You for the evening that's ahead. We ask that You make Your praise glorious in this house tonight, Father. That Your Word come forth with power and, and, and unction and, Lord, with utterance from the Holy Spirit. And that men and women's lives be changed for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. And Amen. Thank You so much for being here this evening. Good things coming.